0: mark um we're going to be talking in mark 11 11 through 26 um i trust everybody had a blessed day yeah all right uh, a little backstory on this jesus has just entered in jerusalem riding on a donkey and the people have laid down coats and palm branches as a sign of them welcoming the king they're excited they're hopeful they're expectant. but thing but things seem to come to a Rather anticlimactic end as Jesus goes first to the temple, looks around, and then leaves the city because it was late. And in our text uh, tonight, we discovered that Jesus didn't like what he saw in the temple, and he goes to use a fig tree to show us what God is really after. So I just go ahead and read the passage. Mark 11, 11 through 26. If you don't mind, please stand for the reading of God's word. <clears throat> and Jesus went out Jerusalem into the temple, so when he had looked around at all things as the hour was already late, he went out to Bethel with the 12. Now the next day when he had come out from Bethel, he was hungry. And seeing from afar a fig tree having leaves, he went to see if perhaps he would find something on it. When he had came to it, he found nothing but leaves. But for, excuse me, for it was not the season for figs. In response, Jesus said to it, let no one eat fruit from you ever again. And his disciples heard it. So they came to Jerusalem, and then Jesus went out into the temple and began to drive out those who had bought, sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves, And he w- would not allow anyone to carry wares through the temple. Then he talked, saying to them, It is not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but we have made it a den of thieves. And the scribes and the chief priests heard it and sought how They might destroy him for they feared him because all the people were astonished of his teaching. When everything had come he went out to the city. Now in the morning as they passed by they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots and Peter reminding or remembering said to him Rabbi look the fig tree which you cursed has withered away. So Jesus answered and said to him them Have faith in God, for surely I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be removed and be cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things he says will be done, and he will have whatever he says. Therefore I say to you, whatever things you say, when you pray, believe that you receive them, and you will have them. And whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him, that your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. Our kind and gracious Heavenly Father, we do come to you just as humble as we know how tonight. Father, we do thank you for your word and we ask that you bless your word. Father, I ask that we open our minds, our hearts, and our ears to receive your word as it is written. Father, we love you. Forgive us of our sins. And all these things we do ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So in our text for tonight, we come to a difficult and challenging story of Jesus. This is the only place in the gospel where we see a miracle of destruction and the cursing of a fig tree. Up till now, the miracles of Jesus have been transformable, restorative. Um, Jesus has healed many people of diseases, sicknesses. Um, he's raised the dead, he's cast out demons, and he's calmed the sea at two different times. Jesus has fed thousands of people on a few loaves of bread and just a few pieces of fish. We have been seeing Jesus perform all these miracles, but then we see Jesus curse a fig tree and it dies. (coughs) What do we do with this church? Are we to conclude like so many others that Jesus is acting here in a way that is out of character? And the answer is no. Because everything we know about Jesus, we have to understand that everything Jesus says and does is intentional, including the cursing of the fig tree. Look at verse 12. Jesus and his disciples are coming from Bethany to Jerusalem, and Jesus sees a fig tree in the distance with leaves on it. So Jesus goes to the tree searching for fruit, but he finds nothing but leaves, at which point Jesus says to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. Now, we might think that it's unfair of Jesus to expect fruit from a fig tree, when well Mark clearly points out um, it was not the season for figs. It was Passover, which makes it the late March, mid-April, and fig harvest was somewhere between August and August in mid-October. And so we need to ask, what is Jesus doing here? If Jesus knew that it wasn't the season for figs, then why would he expect them? Again, we need to understand that everything Jesus says and does is intentional. Jesus is absorbing the leafy fig tree with all of his promise of fruit. It looks like it should have figs on it, but it doesn't and Jesus is connecting the fig tree with the people of Israel. Jesus is using this fig tree as a parable or an illustration, if you would, for those who are rich in religion but who lack the fruit of the Spirit. And if you look at the Old Testament, you will find references all over the place um, to the fig tree being used as a symbolic uh, depiction of the nation of Israel. Hosea 9.10 says, Like grapes in the wilderness I found Israel, like the first fruit of the fig tree in the first season. I saw your fathers, but they came to Baal and consecrated themselves to the things of shame and became detestable like the things that they loved. And so... Jesus rides into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, goes to the temple, and he is confronted with a mess. Um, And he doesn't like what he sees, so that when he comes upon this fig tree on the way to the temple again, he makes this connection. And so Jesus and his disciples enter into Jerusalem, and Mark doesn't even give us a warning for what is about to happen. When they go to the temple, he just says that Jesus began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. Now, we need to understand something about the temple operations in that day. It is speculated that a quarter of a million lambs were sacrificed for Passover. Passover is the time of year when the Jews remember when God rescued the Jewish people out of slavery in Egypt through the plague of death of the firstborn. On that very first Passover, each Jewish family was to sacrifice the lamb and put the blood on the doorpost of their homes so that when the angel of the Lord came, it would pass over uh, their house and they would be spared. And so every year, Jews from all over the place would come to Jerusalem for the Passover, and they would sacrifice the lamb at the temple. The temple meant everything to the first century Jews. It was the center of their spirituality. And there were four sections of the temple. And you got to understand that. I thought I might have had a little illustration, but I must have left it. the court of the Gentiles is one part. The court of the Israel, which is only for Jewish women and men and women, and the court of men Israel, uh, where only Jewish men can go, and the holy of holy, which is the inner sanctum, um, where the only the priests were allowed to go, uh, which was where the curtain, and they tied the bond to the priest and let him go in there and talk to Jesus and... If he wasn't pure, then they'd pull him back out because he had done gone on his way. Um, since the court of Gentiles was where everyone could go to the temple, it became a stock market of animal dealers and money changers, all of whom ensured that the continual practice of sacrifices and offerings. If you didn't want to make the miles journey with uh, your animal, you could just purchase one at the temple. This made things very convenient, but it also meant that the merchants could charge whatever they wanted, because if you needed a lamb, you would have to buy one from them, and the price could be abnormally high, uh, much like today. So there were a lot of sketchy dealings being done in the temple, uh, specifically in the court of the Gentiles, which is where Jesus was when he said, that he, you know, when he cleared the temple. But when Mark said that Jesus began to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple, Mark is using the same words to refer to Jesus casting out demons. The practices that were taking place in the temple were demonic, that Jesus cast them out from the presence of God. And you got to understand, this is where God was to them, behind the curtains. Jesus is quoting from Israel 56-7, seven, seven, where God says, For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Jesus is pointing out that the temple was never the sole property of the Jews. It had become that with the, with the pursuit to gain wealth. But the temple was always intended to be a witness for all nations the place where everyone who loved the name of the Lord and could come to worship. This was always the purpose of the temple, but had not now become a den of thieves. Here Jesus is quoting from Jeremiah 7, 8 through 11, where God also said, Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery? Swear falsely, make an offering to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered. Only to go on doing all these abominations has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes. Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Jesus is recounting the prophecy of Jeremiah, which looked ahead to when the Jewish leaders would expect exploit the temple and to continue to claim that they were children of God. And Jesus saying, you are like the fig tree that I saw as I was coming to the temple today. You are rich in religion, but you have no fruit. You claim to follow God, but your works tell different stories. And this isn't just for the Jewish people of that day. There's something here for all of us today. When I was in my teens, this would have described me. I came to faith in Jesus as a young age. I went to church every Sunday. My mother and grandmother made sure of it. I was in Sunday school every Sunday. When I got older, I was even in RAs. Um, I had checked all the boxes, uh, but you know what, church? I had no fruit. I did so many things as a teenager, as an adolescent, and as an adult that I'm not proud of. The biggest thing was continuing in my modern or made-up religion in my own head with no repentance. There was no desire to abandon the worldly things that I had embraced for the sake of following Christ. I had my feet on both sides of the fence, and it wasn't until God opened my eyes to see the danger of my unfruitfulness that things began to change. It reminds me of church that the Apostle John writes to in, in Revelations. And I think it's in 2 and 15, He's talking about a group called the Nicolaitans. Now, we're going to talk about two deacons in that time that the Apostles laid hands on. Um, Nicholas of Antioch is one of them, um, and he's a character. And you've got to keep in mind that he is a deacon. Earliest record days of the church history says that the Nicolaitans were the spiritual descendants of Nicholas of Antioch, who had been ordained as a deacon in Acts 6:5. Now, according to the writings of the early church leaders, Nicholas taught a doctrine of compromise. He was not afraid of taking opposing positions. He was a free thinker and very open to embracing new ideas and concepts. Records from the early church seem apparent that this Nicholas of Antioch was so immersed in uh, occultism, Judaism, and Christianism that he had no problem intermingling these beliefs to suit his needs, and he continued to have fellowship with those still immersed in the black magic of Rome Empire and the countless mystery cults. John is writing to them in Revelation 2 and 3 and 4, 2, 3, 4. He says, I know you are enduring patience and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Now here he's not talking about the love of Jesus. They still love Jesus. what we were talking about, the first love they had abandoned was repentance. And we talked a little bit about this in Sunday school this morning. They had initially turned away from their sin to follow Jesus, but somewhere along the way they had abandoned repentance and had given themselves over to the worldly desires. They were like the leafy fig tree who had the appearance of godliness but didn't have the fruit of the Spirit. And maybe this is where some of us are at today. Maybe we have our own modified religion, but we don't have the fruit, as Isaiah twenty-nine thirteen says, this people drew near with their mouths and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me. Maybe we are providing lip service to God, but our lives tell a different story. In the end, these are the leave, just leaves. It's not enough to claim to, to follow Christ if our lives do not reflect the Christ we claim to follow. Without fruit, we are empty and dead, just like the fig tree. Do we understand the seriousness of this passage of Scripture? Do we need to hear today that the solemn charge from Jesus to the fig tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again? Do we need to evaluate our hearts to see if we are far from God? You can see that Jesus is initially cursing the fig tree here to show us the dangers of unfruitfulness. Don't get caught up in any kind of beliefs that obey the rules and regulations or modify religion that you make up as though we think that what God is after is our lip service and not bearing fruit unto repentance. Look at the judgment that Jesus is pronouncing upon the temple as its leaders in the cursing of the fig tree. Later in Mark 13, one of Jesus' one of disciples is going to marvel at the wonderful stones and building of the temple. And Jesus is going to say, Do you see these great buildings? They will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. This prophecy will be fulfilled in the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD, when the temple is destroyed. And in Matthew 7:21 you can read 7 uh, 21 through23, but Jesus says that those who do not fear for, who do not bear fruit, those who claim to know Jesus, who even do, mighty works in jesus name but whose loves whose lives show no resemblance to jesus will not enter the kingdom of god this isn't just about the religious leaders this is anyone who claims to follow christ may we not be like the religious leaders here who do not take jesus word to heart notice that we do not repent of the wrongdoings instead. They try to find a way to kill Jesus. It says they feared him because of the crowd was astonished at his teaching. Church, they did not fear him because he was the Son of God. No, they feared Jesus because the crowd was more astonished with Jesus than with them. This goes all the way back to Mark 122, where the crowd was astonished at Jesus' teaching in the synagogue because he taught as one who had authority and not as a scribe. This has been building ever since Jesus has first stepped out on the same church. Jesus has taken a metaphoric sledgehammer and tearing the temple down and their religious system with it. It's why when Jesus and the disciples leave the city and pass by the fig tree, they see it withered away to its roots it's a picture of what is happening to the people of Israel, but it's also a picture of what Jesus came to do in their lives and for his people. This goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve ate the fruit from one of the trees in the garden that God commanded them not to eat. And as such, they brought the curse of sin into the world where things were, or broken relationships, diseases, viruses, death, um, are reality. But then you come to Jesus who would suffer temptation in another garden, and that garden is Gethsemane. But who would not give into the temptations presented to him? And as a result, Jesus would be crucified on the cross by the same religious leaders who feared him. And Galatians 3.13 says that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Can you see that tree image today, church? Jesus cursed this fig tree and then because of becomes a curse for us. He calls out those who claim to follow him but who bear no fruit. Those who a God with their lips but whose hearts are far from him and he dies on the cursed tree on their behalf and ours. You get to the end of Revelations to the new heavens and new earth and what is not there? <coughs> Revelations twenty-one twenty-two says, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the mighty, and the Lamb. But you flip on over to Revelations 22, 2 through 3, and you read that in the new heavens and the new earth, there is the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of this tree um, were there for the healing of the nations. Jesus is not cursing the fig tree for no reason. Jesus would curse it for the purpose of warning us of the danger of unfruitfulness in the Christian life and also to show us that he would die on a tree for his people. Jesus, not the temple, is the object of faith. The temple isn't just destroyed, but it is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus who will not be corrupt, who will not swindle, but who will do what the temple was always supposed to do, and that is become the means by which we approach God. Have you put your faith in Jesus, or have you been trying to earn God's favor by obeying your own rules and regulations? Are you bearing fruit, or do you have a lot of leaves with no fruit to show for it? In John 15, 5, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, I am in him. He is the bears much fruit. And apart from me, you can do nothing. Fruitfulness in the Christian life begins and ends with Jesus, church. We aren't able to make ourselves fruitful. We are only as fruitful as we are in Christ if we have no relationship with Jesus then we will not be fruitful the only way we'll bear much fruit is if we abide in Christ and how do we know if we are abiding Christ Jesus gives us two examples of the kind of fruit that God is after prayer and forgiveness First fruit is pear. In verse 23 Jesus says, truly I say to you whoever says to this mountain be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart but believes that what he says will come to pass. It will be done for him. Now this isn't name it and claim it church. This ain't name it and claim it stuff at all where you just need to say the word and it's yours or that it's if you need healing then you just need to believe that god has already healed you and you will be healed or that everything will work out the way we want it to i'm going to say that one more time or that everything will work out the way that we want it to if we just believe no instead prayer is aligning our will with the will of god we must always have the same perspective that jesus had confidence in god's power but also submissive to his will we can absolutely be confident in the power of god god can do more than we ever think is possible like throwing a mountain into the sea he is the sovereign king of his throne who does what is good for the good of the gifts of his people But we must always submit to his will so that whenever we ask God, we are doing so with open hands, open hearts, and ready to receive whatever he gives us in the moment. God answers prayers. But as an example of fruitfulness is that we pray to God (coughs) since we have direct access to God through Jesus. (coughs) We are able to abide with God and he in us, so that we bear much fruit. The second fruit is forgiveness. In verse 25, Jesus says, And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father is always also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. We talked a little bit about that this morning also in Sunday school. God's free forgiveness of sin is one of the most glorious realities for a Christian. If we are unwilling to forgive others, then we are not no better than those in the temple who are rich in religion but who lack love for their neighbor. In the end, it simply reveals that we have no fruit. We see a good example of forgiveness in the book of Acts. And in Acts 6, Stephen, who's the other deacon that I was telling you about, this is one we need to follow. Examples. Stephen was one of the men chosen to serve in the church, but he is arrested by the religious leaders. So Stephen is brought before the high priest to account for his crimes. And after giving... An overview of the scripture, Stephen concludes his lengthy discourse by condoning the religious leaders for putting the death of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Well, this doesn't even go over well with the religious leaders. It says that they rushed at Stephen's, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. And Stephen says, listen to this church, Lord, do not hold this sin against them the one who had not sinned is asking God to forgive those who sin against him. Jesus said a similar thing when out on the cross. What did he say, church? He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. But notice that the power of Stephen to forgive his enemies does not come from within himself. It comes from God. Look at where Stephen's gaze is in Acts 7 55. It says that he looked up he looked up church and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God this is a man it says who was full of faith and of the Holy Spirit he could forgive because he was abiding in the vine of Christ He was fruitful right until the end of his life. Will we be able to say that, church? Can we say that? The reason Jesus gives those two examples of fruitfulness, prayer, and forgiveness is because they were lacking when he entered the temple. Jesus was looking for fruit in the lives of his people, but he found nothing but leaves. May we grow in fruitfulness according to the grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. As the pianist comes and the song leader comes, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our kind and gracious heaven, Father, we do thank you for letting me be able to come up here and speak your word once again. Father, we do thank you for the many blessings in life. And, Father, with these witnesses right here, I ask for repentance in my life. Father, I ask that you forgive me of my sins and for my shortcomings. Father, I ask that you forgive the sins of those here. And if there's somebody here today, Lord, if somebody hears this later on the recording, that they will come to you, Lord, as as knowing that you are the only one. And without you, they cannot be washed in the blood of Jesus Christ and get into heaven. Father, we do love you. We ask that you do forgive us of our sins. Lead, guide us, and protect us in all these things we do ask. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: Lord, we are bearing fruit for you, God, and we're not just uh, bearing fruit for the world to see, dear Lord. We're not just bearing fruit for material things, but God, we are eternally minded, dear Lord, that we're heavenly minded, that our hearts are there, and our hearts are not here because your word says where our hearts are, where our love is, where our love is, that's where our heart will be. Let us look to our love for you, dear Lord. Let us look to our love in your coming, dear Lord. Let us look to the love that you... God, I pray that this church would be fruitful. Lord, that we would reach others, that we would reach lost, and Lord, we reach this community. God, that we would look out, we would look for ways to serve you.